The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to a new trading month. It is the 1st of June. So let's kick off with a look at our headlines. Uh, Reports that OPEC may revisit its oil deal with Russia, this according to the Wall Street Journal, while the UK looks to add its backing to an EU ban on insuring ships that carry Russian crude. President Biden has sat down with Fed Chair Jerome Powell to focus on inflation, pledging to back the uh, central bank strategy to tackle surging prices. My plan is to address inflation starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. Eurozone inflation hits its highest level since the creation of the common currency, spurring a decline in bond yields and helping keep fresh pressure on the ECB to act. Chinese factory activity stems its steep declines but remains firmly in contraction territory as Shanghai removes restrictions after two months of lockdowns. And the German asset manager DWS replaces its CEO hours after police raid its Frankfurt headquarters in a greenwashing probe. So let's focus in on the sanctions story this morning. The UK and the EU have reportedly agreed a coordinated ban on insuring ships that carry Russian oil. Under the new rules, Moscow would no longer have access to Lloyd's of London and the insurance market, which would likely have severe consequences on Russia's crude exports. The bloc has already agreed an embargo on most Russian oil shipments. Gazprom says it'll cut gas supplies to Shell in Germany after the company refused to pay for energy imports in rubles. The Russian state-owned energy giant says it'll stop the flow of supplies from today. Shell says it will continue to provide energy to existing customers in Europe and will work on a, quote, phased withdrawal from Russian hydrocarbons. Earlier this week, Gazprom also said it'll cut supplies to the Dutch gas company Gasterra, as well as Denmark's Orsted. Moscow has also pledged to find other buyers for its oil after the EU agreed to impose an embargo on Russian crude. The country's permanent representative to Vienna said the oil ban reflects negatively on the bloc, adding that the EU is, quote, not in good shape. Several OPEC members are reportedly weighing whether to suspend Russia from the production deal it has agreed with other allies. This according to the Wall Street Journal, which says some representatives are worried about the impact of Western sanctions on Moscow's ability to pump more. Well, let's get to Dan for more on the ramifications of this. Dan, we're just hearing from the headlines that the noose is now tightening again on Russia when it comes to sanctions. Just gives a sense as to what action OPEC plus could take. 
Karen, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Well, this just a day after the EU moved on this partial ban of Russian oil into Europe, the Wall Street Journal now reports that OPEC could actually be considering exempting Russia from its production deal. This, of course, comes as Europe continues to turn the screws when it comes to sanctions on Russia, ultimately limiting Russia's ability to send its crude oil around the world. So what happens here remains to be seen, but the Wall Street Journal has also indicated that exempting Russia would basically pave the way for other producers who have production capacity like Saudi Arabia and the UAE to send more oil out onto the market here. I've been hitting the phones this morning. I've sent multiple messages out on WhatsApp, which is the platform of choice for a lot of the energy ministers within the OPEC group, trying to get a better sense of what's actually happening here. And hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll have more clarity for you later on in the morning. But the current thinking is, is that OPEC is going to stick to the script when it meets tomorrow, that is staying the course on its current production agreement. But this question over Russia, as I say, remains to be seen at this point. Even if producers like Saudi Arabia and the UAE made up that Russian shortfall, the impact would be minimal. And that's why we've seen oil prices actually rising off the back of this report now. We saw an initial leg lower on the thinking that Russian oil could be replaced by those Saudi UAE barrels. But now the market has reversed and we see Brent and WTI both up uh, just under half of 1%. What's interesting to point out for you, though, is that diplomacy has been increasing, particularly as we see Europe moving further and further against Russia. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is in the kingdom today as we speak. And talks between Washington and Riyadh have also accelerated in recent weeks as well. And I thought there was an interesting note out from Halima Croft at RBC earlier on in the week that said these discussions could actually result in a production policy shift at some point this summer as part of a broader relationship reset. But she also said, with spare capacity so constrained, it's unclear how much relief OPEC Plus can really provide as long as the war involving the world's commodity superstore rages on. So it remains to be seen what will happen at the OPEC Plus meeting tomorrow, but our understanding is that OPEC is likely to stay the course here. Let's watch and wait. Hopefully we'll get more information throughout the course of the morning for you. It's back over to you. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. It's all a little bit nothing to see here. Let's move on, isn't it? But as we know, there is a fierce war raging in Eastern Europe and ultimately it's having huge impact on commodity prices. But let's just step away from that for a moment because I want to refocus on the trade yesterday. So this is how we finished the trading session. And um, I think what's important to note here, for all those of you who follow the seasonals and were given those warnings back in April that maybe it's time to sell in May and go away, as the old market source says, well, to be honest, um, it didn't really work. But then you didn't make money in the US markets uh, across the month of May if you were invested in the indices. So at the end of the trading session yesterday, basically the Dow down over 200 points. And effectively what that means is that uh, for the month, you barely saw any upside at all. And we've had a look at the... uh, the September numbers as well here. So in terms of the decline for September, we were down uh, about uh, six-tenths, uh, sorry, for, for the index yesterday, we were down six-tenths of 1% here. But in terms of the uh, performance uh, for the whole of May, the S&P was up a very modest 
0.22 points. So tiny, tiny, and in percentage terms, barely registering. So it was effectively a flat end to the month. Oh yes, there was a lot of uh, volatility within it, of course, and we were here talking about it every day through those 21 trading sessions in May. We ultimately saw the S&P move uh, in a 12 percentage point range. So quite a lot of movement, but ultimately, if you look back on the performance, it looks like almost nothing happened, doesn't it, as the market ultimately finished uh, level. NASDAQ Composite was a little bit more turbulent, as we know, as the, uh, the markets got focused on inflation and what ultimately that was going to mean uh, for those um, uh, growth stocks. Uh, but as we wrapped up the trade yesterday, actually, the NASDAQ was one of the better performers. And again, the market is very focused on this idea of a September pause. Uh, but we did hear some comments from uh, Mr. Bostick, uh, one of the uh, Fed speakers, who ultimately said the idea of a September pause pause is not tied to any looming market rescue. So ultimately, he's trying to put a little bit of distance between himself and that idea that he espouses a pause in the September hiking cycle. What does it mean for treasuries? As always, we take a good hard look at the bond market to get a sense of what the, uh, uh, the, the largest market is ultimately doing, whether the money is coming back into Uh, the Treasury market and not a lot of movement to be honest with you as we continue to sit at 2.8% here and the the shape of the curve continues to look um, relatively flat doesn't it? So not a huge amount of guidance as to whether uh, the uh, bond market thinks that the economy is going to improve or the economy is going to get worse from here but we know that some of the data points are slowly decelerating things like consumer confidence are beginning to ebb a little bit. Let's have a look at the uh, dollar crosses uh, just to show you what the greenback is doing here. Well, a little bit of punch back as far as the pound is concerned. Not really helped by the fact that we've got a lot of banks at the moment that seem to be putting out reports on the pound and the state of the UK economy and putting the boot in. I think one of the lines was emerging market-like conditions ahead for the pound. Um, as you can see here, but 125.81 not a huge amount of movement and euro dollar currently one spot zero seven one one the dollars in the driving seat on the yen and on the yuan oil we showed you oil earlier on and dan gave us a very good read on what he thinks the uh, opec team are ultimately going to do in terms of uh, providing uh, further oil the headline story as you know is this Wall Street Journal report suggesting that there are conversations within OPEC Plus about cancelling the agreement as far as Russia is concerned, which would ultimately open the way for Saudi Arabia to pump more. But I'm not sure the market's buying it as we look at WTI crude at uh, 115.2. Let's have a look at the uh, Asian session. Can we uh, just show you how we're doing? It's a mixed bag. We had some data that wasn't exactly inspiring on the Chaishin series from Shanghai, from from the uh, China economy. And ultimately, it was a number that missed expectations. So we're a little bit weaker on the greater China markets. The Nikkei 225 up nearly three quarters of 1%. And I'm very happy to give way this morning 
to Karen. Very good morning, Karen, and welcome back. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jeff. Let's talk a little bit more about inflation as President Biden has held face-to-face -face talks with Fed Chair Jerome Powell as inflation rages around 40-year highs across America. The U.S. leader pledged to give the central bank time and space to tackle pricing pressures, describing it as a critically important work. My job as president is not to uh, nominate, highly, not only nominate highly, highly qualified individuals for that institution, but to give them the space they need to do their job. I'm not going to interfere with their critically important work. The Fed has dual responsibilities. One, full employment. Two, stable prices. Chair Powell and other leaders of the Fed have noted at this moment they have a laser focus on addressing inflation, just like I am. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted she underestimated the durability of inflation, telling CNN she was wrong on the path that inflation would take. Yellen cited unexpected shocks to the economy, which affected food and energy prices, saying that she didn't fully understand them at the time. In early 2021, Yellen dismissed the risk of substantial inflation as, quote, small risk. Consumer confidence across the U.S. fell to its lowest level in over a year in May, according to the Conference Board's latest report. A perceived softening in the labour market and rising inflation weighing on the index, which fell to 106.4 signs of price pressures, continuing to come through in the real estate sector, with house prices jumping over 20% in March, according to the S&P Case-Shiller home price index. So still very tight housing market, but the existing home sales do look a little softer. Well, speaking to CNBC, the CME Group chairman and CEO Terry Duffy said the president's meeting with Powell would likely lead to further speculation. We saw today where the president was meeting with uh, the Fed chairman, which is pretty unusual to do, to see that going on, because I'm assuming the, the president's very concerned about the inflation and, and what's, what does it mean and what can the Fed chair do about it? Can he increase it or can he not? What kind of pace does he need to go at? I think there's a whole bunch of speculation of why these two are getting together at this moment in time. Well, there you go. Um, so I, I think what he was saying was that it would just lead to greater uncertainty and confusion in the markets about the timing of the Fed's moves here. But what about the ECB? Well, Eurozone inflation has hit a fresh record high of 8.1%. This was a stronger number than forecast and is the highest annual level since the euro was created in 1999. A spike in energy and food prices exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine were the key drivers behind the rise. Karen, I know we're meant to have a chat here about EU inflation, but I, I think there's been more action really around uh, speakers in the US at the moment. And I think it's just worth us reflecting on this. So we've had a mea culpa from Jay Powell. I didn't realize it would be longer than this in terms of the uh, inflationary upside and run. Um, we've now had uh, Janet Yellen with her mea culpa. Uh, and the extraordinary uh, meeting yesterday where my sense was that President Biden didn't really offer very much more to tackle inflation than his promise that he would uh, acknowledge Fed independence and let them do the heavy lifting. 
Yeah, it's a U-turn though, isn't it? And I think if we just reconsider the series of events, don't forget there was anticipated some normalisation on the back of the COVID trends that we were witnessing, but then another layer on top was the geopolitics. That was something that policymakers had not anticipated, the events around Russia and how that's further driven up energy prices and the second round effects we are seeing from energy and, of course, food when it comes to, to the war in Ukraine. So I think that is another just twist and turn in the developments here and perhaps those initial transitory comments might have been slightly different if there'd been a reassessment around the geopolitics as well. But uh, here we are and uh, two massive events, of course, impacting the world economy. And if I think the European perspective, we just uh, trade over to this side of the world, you can see the numbers are incredibly strong. The uh, analysis by uh, some of the big banks, ING, yesterday was looking at the, the pass through of inflation as to why it is now starting to look entrenched and uh, effectively was it 17 out of the 94 main components of the German inflation basket had inflation rates of 2% or less. This is the target, of course. So uh, just a, a fraction now out of the, the main components really are staying at, at low inflation levels. The rest are all rising. And uh, this is telling you just how widespread this is becoming, not just around food, not just around energy, but the second round effects. And we saw it on the other side for many, many years, for a decade odd, where there were second round impacts from low energy prices that were being passed through. This is just the, the opposite side. It's the flip side of that, isn't it? And it's going to take a while to tame the question is whether we've seen policy mistakes now from the ECB about pre-committing to this rate path, the 25 basis points coming up first in July, and then again in September, whether we should be talking about a different type of policy action at this point, Jeff. Yeah, the other interesting aspect, I think, is what the reaction in the markets is and how the Fed speakers are now negotiating uh, the market idea. Do you remember back in the old days, um, we used to talk about the plunge protection team. Did it exist? Was there a... Uh, a team of um, uh, uh, supporters of the market that would step in, um, directed by the central bank to do that if volatility became excessive. Well, this time round, I think what what is very notable is the Fed speakers like the Advan uh, Atlanta uh, um, uh, 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 Fed president, Raphael Bostic, are really at pains here to say the Fed is not going to come to the rescue of the markets. The idea of a September pause is not a Fed put at this point. So don't think that you're going to get bailed out if ultimately the markets begin to lose momentum much more rapidly uh, in the uh, third quarter of the year here. So I, I think that's a, a fascinating line from uh, Raphael Bostic. And Karen, we'll come back, no doubt, talk about it in a bit more detail as we go through the morning here. And we'll, we'll get into some of our guests on the subject. But we've got to go to break, so let's do that. When we come back, still to come on the programme, residents in Shanghai enjoy their first moments of freedom in two months as the city exits a COVID lockdown. We'll catch up on the latest China data when we come back. And for more on the, how the fresh round of sanctions are hitting the Russian economy, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. 
Chinese factory activity beat expectations in May, but still remains in contraction territory. The Chinese manufacturing PMI, which skews towards smaller and private companies, came in at 48.1. That improved from April's more than two-year low. Uh, Shanghai uh, has now lifted restrictions on its 25 million residents after two months of lockdown. Large crowds gathering after midnight in popular shopping and socialising districts, with commuter traffic rebounding as uh, workers return to their offices. The president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai told our colleagues in Asia that the work to recover lost ground is only just starting. Today is a big day for Shanghai after a two-month uh, lockdown. And as you just showed some footage, uh, the residents in Shanghai were celebrating uh, last night. And uh, just this morning, I've seen a lot of traffic and people on the street. So people are getting back to uh, their normal lives. But as far as um, uh, manufacturing and uh, supply chains uh, resumption, it's going to take some time. Well, let's get to Sam then for more on these uh, Chinese numbers. And Sam, I saw an expectation of around 49. The team's written this up as a beat at 48.1, but it looked lighter to me. Um, Just clarify for us, was this a good number or not? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, there were a few forecasts. Some were looking at around 49, some were looking at around 48. But what I would say, it was consistent with the official numbers that we got, which has shown a degree of stabilisation because it was better than what we saw in April. So we have seen a slight improvement there and small signs of certainly a recovery when it comes to some of that factory activity, as we have seen some of those COVID curbs ease. And of course, the policymakers really cranking out more stimulus and particularly for those smaller firms, which is what that Caixin manufacturing PMI actually looks at. But uh, as you pointed out, we have seen both readings still in a contraction. And what that suggests to us is that the economy still remains very fragile. And the companies in this survey have put this down to the uh, continued lockdowns, the restrictions that remain throughout the uh, month of May, of course, in critical manufacturing places like Shanghai, of course. They also put it down to weak consumer demand. People uh, have, of course, been uh, hesitant to go out and spend their money, but also they are putting the blame down to the uncertainties in the uh, overseas market when it comes to some of those exports because of the Ukraine crisis as well. So certainly uh, signs that the economy still remains vulnerable. We do know that some of those companies did opt for those bubbles where these employees were essentially living and eating at work, but we do know that came with some challenges as well, like logistics, like staffing. Uh, We did see that some of those delivery times are keeping their still prolonged, uh, which suggests that we could see an impact perhaps further on the export side of things. And one of the worrying things I did pick up in this survey was that employment continued to slip. So that seems to flash some warning signs, certainly for the labour market in what is a very politically sensitive year for the policymakers. Now, we do know that they have been rolling out more steps to try to stabilise the economy and the job market. Uh, But all eyes really are on Shanghai now as they are reopening things in terms of what uh, lockdown-free Shanghai 
Shanghai actually looks like uh, some 22 million residents actually able to leave their homes now, go to work in most of these uh, low-risk areas and also get in their cars, go on public transport. But it was interesting, I just heard that comment from Amcham uh, that you played just ahead of me. It's a similar story. I was just speaking to a, a chief economist over at Hang Seng Bank who's also a resident of Shanghai, and I asked her, given the global implications and ramifications that we've seen as a result of some of these lockdowns, not just on the Chinese economy, what is sentiment like among businesses and what is confidence like, more importantly, among residents? And she said, uh, Karen, that it is really hard to restore confidence because a lot of these residents and businesses know that zero COVID really is the most important thing. And in that sense, there is a lot of uncertainty still for this economy, which suggests to us that this recovery may still be quite some time before we see a full comeback. Back to you. Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the latest detail. Uh, let's push on to a big corporate story playing out in Europe today. DWS CEO Shoker Vollmann has resigned just hours after police raided the offices of both it and majority owner Deutsche Bank amid greenwashing claims. In a statement, the German asset manager said the head of Deutsche's corporate bank, Stefan Hoops, will assume the role from the 10th of June. A couple of points here. I think it's a big issue for a lot of funds now to revisit what they are doing at their funds and whether they truly pass the ESG hurdle because this is a huge issue when it comes to reputational damage. You think about the funds and the growth areas that they've had. Many have been pushing into ESG. That's where they've seen some of the strongest returns, the strongest, strongest uplift in terms of inflows in recent months. Uh, maybe the, the tech route and the market seller just putting a little bit of a dent in that. But still, the trend has been there and to have authorities raiding the operations looking for evidence of greenwashing is probably the worst case scenario for a growth area of the business. So it is a warning signal to other banks and other funds. And just to round this out, I mean, a couple of days ago, we were covering a story from the SEC's perspective and effectively, there was a warning that they were going after greenwashing. They had lobbed a fine at BNY Mellon's investment advisor division worth about $1.5 million. Still small fry if you think about the size of fines, but it was a shot across the bow effectively to say that they're going after uh, some of the regulation in this space. And I think uh, this is now, as we see it stretch from the United States to Europe, a signal that regulators are getting tough on this space, which what now accounts for $2.77 trillion at the end of the first quarter, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a little bit of a drip, drip, drip going on here, isn't there? Because um, do you remember Tarek Fancy? We talked about him uh, several months back and um, how he was effectively blowing the whistle on how he felt that uh, uh, quite often uh, some of the claims that were being made by companies and perhaps even by fund management businesses were a little, um, so what, shall we say, stretched? when it comes to the green credentials here. So I think it's fascinating that we now have a situation where ultimately allegations of excessive claims have resulted in a police raid. Uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing that the authorities are taking greater interest in this because the alternative, of course, is the, that we end up with significant shareholder litigation at some point down the road where questions are asked about were they actually sold something that was legitimately green in its focus or was this ultimately another case of greenwashing? So it's interesting that we are getting now a number of um, individuals who are very close to the uh, activity and the story uh, starting to question to what extent this is a legitimate investment space. 
clearly there are companies that are working very hard to improve their profile to net zero but it does seem that perhaps there's been a little bit of generous marketing around some of the products Karen. Yeah, and just quickly, worth noting, Vorman himself was facing all sorts of different investigations and uh, probe on the back of uh, dealings around a loan for a Porsche over at Auto One Fintech. And I think probably just worth noting that. But I don't think it takes away from the broader conversation. I think there is a, a big crackdown going down now in the space around the ESG and that this is a warning signal. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.